Appreciate everyone being back out uh, this evening. Hope you brought, brought your Bibles with you and be willing to open them up and let's study together tonight. I hope I've got some things that'll be stimulating for us and uh, give us <clears throat> some reason to, uh, <clears throat> to think. So I'm having a little trouble with my voice this evening, as you can tell, but uh, I'll try to get through it as best I can. Well, I want to begin by reviewing some things that happen in church history. I'm not a historian, obviously, uh, but I do like to read church history. And it seems that I've read more of it in the last few years than I have in the past. As you know, the church was started, it began in the first century. Been studying that on Sunday mornings. We studied that in class this morning. The day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached for the first time after the resurrection of Jesus, and the doors into the kingdom were opened, and people flocked into it. 3,000 on that first day, and then a little bit later we find that the number of men grew to be 5,000, and from that point on the number of disciples uh, in increased. Uh, the church uh, uh, grew and, and developed. And we find it going up into Syria, for example, at Antioch, and down into Ethiopia with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, of course, with the travels of Paul, goes uh, lots of other places. But then after the first century, some changes began to develop. And so the apostles taught in that first century about the church and the worship of the church and the way the church is to be organized and so forth. And then after that first century, after the sort of the close of the apostolic period, developments began to take place. In the very beginning, you had elders overseeing a single flock. And so they oversaw the flock that was among them, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. But eventually, as time went on, a bishop began to oversee churches in an area or churches in a, a region. And so you had one bishop, ultimately that had authority over a number of churches. The doctrine of apostolic succession developed. And that is that the idea is that the bishops are the successors to the apostles. And so they carry as much weight uh, in, in the church and over the churches as the apostles did uh, in the first century at the beginning of the church. There was the rise of the Roman church's influence. And there are a number of reasons for that, but the church in Rome uh, came to have more and more power and more and more authority over the churches, and so that it became a leader. And uh, other churches looked to the church in Rome for guidance. And again, there are several reasons for that. The bishop of Rome was recognized as the chief bishop in the church. And so, the bishops are successors of the apostles, but the bishop of Rome, bishop of that particular city, uh, it became, that, that bishop was recognized as the chief bishop of the church. There was the convergence of church and state, so that the church, the church's laws became the state laws. And so it became a crime to violate the church laws. And so there was a convergence of church and state so that the ruler of the church, it became the ruler of, you know, the, the state as well. And we have separation of church and state, and, and I, I'm all for that. <laughs> but 
after the first century, and then in the years following, church and state eventually were converged, came together. There was the development of canon law. And so you have the law of the New Testament, the, the Scriptures, but canon law is, has to do with the polity of the church, the rules of the church, how the church carries out its affairs, how the church is organized, the procedures of the church, the administration of the sacraments of the church, how that was to be done, who could do that. It also reached down, canon law, church law, also reached down to the average member of the church and, and addressed his conduct in areas like marriage, for example. And so the rules of the church came to control every aspect of life. And then the development of the priesthood and the sacramental system. And so the priesthood, the priests, very much different from what we read in the, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all believers, all Christians are priests and can approach God on their own behalf through Christ. But eventually there was a group of men selected to set apart from other members of the church. And they served as a sort of intermediary, a mediator between the ordinary, uh, ordinary Christian, ordinary believer, and, and God. And so he went to God, interceded to God on behalf of the people. The sacramental system was, uh, had to do with... Uh, uh, the, the activities of the church, and how, how grace was conveyed to the members of the church through the sacraments of the church. And the priests could administer the sacraments, and uh, usually only the priests, although in extreme cases maybe someone else could do some of that. But in order to be right with the church, you had to go through the priest and the sacramental system. Well, the result of all that was that the Roman Catholic Church dominated the lives, both the religious life and secular life, of the people. And over time, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, continued to develop doctrines and practices founded more on the authority of the church than Scripture. And so as time was going on in church history, church developed more and more doctrines and practices that rested on the authority of the church more than the authority of Scripture. In fact, the writings of the ancient church fathers, combined with, uh, with the pronouncements of the church councils, they had in the minds of the people as much authority as Scripture itself. And so the tradition of the church, the writings of the so-called church fathers, the decisions of the councils, in the, in the minds of many, that, that was just as authoritative as the scriptures were. And so the church developed more and more practices that rested on the authority of the church rather than scripture. Well, more and more practices developed, and, and some of them further and further away from what scripture taught. Some real problems arose in the church, and eventually there was an effort to bring about reforms in, in the church. The Reformation movement began, and if you've studied history, world history at all, even in school, you've studied something about the Reformation movement. And so those are men like Martin Luther and perhaps others who first of all started to reform the existing church, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but, but in time, after their attempts to reform, bring about reform, 
were, were not accepted, well then, new religious movements began. Not all reformers saw things alike. Luther did not see things like Ulrich Zwingli did. They, they, had, they had differences between them. It's a famous meeting between the two of them, and they talked about their differences. And so, and so the, the reformers didn't see everything alike. Uh, and uh, uh, Arminius, Jacob Arminius, didn't see things the way Calvin saw them. And so as a result of all that, new religious groups formed. New groups among believers, those who had claimed to, to, to follow Christ. And so they, they didn't see everything alike. And so, and so new groups formed. So we had, now we have Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists and so forth. And, and that's been continuing to this day. Even today there are new groups being formed, new denominations being formed. Now all of these groups or all these movements or all these efforts would place importance on the Bible. All of them would say the Bible is important to us. We value very highly the Bible. We consider it Scripture. But the Bible doesn't play the same role in all of these groups, and that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. And so they're, 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 these groups and movements, we might say, fall into two general categories as regarding the Bible. Some see the Bible as a somewhat accurate account of the history of the beginning of the church. And so what is the Bible? The Bible tells us how the church began, and it's a, it's a, it's a fairly accurate, somewhat accurate account of that. It contains the foundational principles of the church. And so the church should respect those principles and work within those principles and try not to violate those principles. But for some churches, the Bible is a starting point. All right? And so as years go by, as times change, as society develops, well, the church must adapt and change and develop along with it. And so the Bible is an important document it contains the founding principles of the church, but it shouldn't be used as a guide today in its detail. Uh, it uh, should not be looked at as a detailed blueprint for the church today. I've heard people say that. It, the, Bible, the New Testament is not a, a blueprint for the church today and would be a mistake if we were try to use it as a detailed blueprint for the church today. And so... What's, what's, the, what's the New Testament? Well, it tells us about the founding of the church, the beginning of the church. It contains the sort of the foundational principles upon which the church began. But as time goes by and society changes and so forth, the church has to change and adapt its teaching, its doctrine, its practices along with it so that today a church might not practice and do the same thing that they did in the first century. Now that's one way churches use the Bible. They would say the Bible is very important to us. We don't want to transgress those foundational principles that we find in the text. The other way churches look at the Bible, we might describe as back to the Bible movements or back to the Bible efforts. These groups issue a call to believers to do exactly what scriptures say, to put its teaching into action. They would say the Word of God speaks to every age 
And so we don't need to bring the church into conformity with it. And so the idea is as society changes, the Bible still speaks to the culture and society. Talked this morning a little bit about uh, the, uh, the trend in our, our culture to um, bring the sacred down and bring the holy down and make it common and make it profane to the point where we're beginning to see more world in the church than church in the world, you know. And so the back to the Bible idea is we want to do exactly what the Scriptures say. We want the culture to conform to the Bible. Well, we don't want uh, the church to conform to the culture. And so God established things the way He wanted them in the beginning. And if we can reproduce that today, well, then we'll please Him. And so we might call the first idea kind of a progressive idea. And so the Bible contains those fundamental principles, those foundational principles, but as society progresses, well, we can't be bound by a first century document. We need, we need to progress along with it. The other one we might call just a back to the Bible. And so we're calling people back to the Bible. <laughs> and look at the way things were as God established them in the beginning and reproduce that and we'll know that we'll be pleasing to God. Well, I hope as you think about that and think about the church at Oak Mountain, you don't have any trouble figuring out exactly where we fit into that scheme. <laughs> We're calling people back to the Bible, very clearly back to the Bible. But our question tonight is, does the Bible itself suggest which one of those it expects of us? Does the Bible give us some guidance? Does the Bible tell us how we should use it over the course of time? And what I want to do for the most part tonight is just look at a series of passages. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to, of course, add several to that. But look at Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with His apostles. This is the occasion when Jesus says, Who, who do men say that I am? I know people are talking about me. What are they, what are they saying about me? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so here the apostles are given the authority to bind on earth what God has bound in heaven, and to loose on earth what God has loosed in heaven. In other words, they have the authority to, in their teaching, require people disciples of Jesus, to do certain things, to, to bind these things on them, to require it of them, or to loose them from certain things, to give them permission to act in certain ways. But that authority is given to the apostles. Okay? You have the authority to bind and loose. And so it's no surprise to us when we go over to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the church began, the apostles were preaching and people were flowing into the church. It says they continually were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So it's no wonder that they were continuing in the apostles' doctrine because Christ had given the apostles the authority to bind and loose. Whose doctrine other than the apostles would you, would you follow? <laughs> They're given the authority to bind and loose what had been bound and loosed in heaven. Kind of see the idea again over in the Gospel of John chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus again tells the apostles, when he the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He'll not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. And so the Spirit is going to guide the apostles into all the truth. All right, so if you want to know the truth, where do you go? To, to whose writings do you go? Whose teachings do you go to? We go to the apostles. Because Jesus promised the Spirit would guide them into all the truth. Now, are we to believe that the teaching of the apostles was binding on a single generation? I'm going to give you the, the authority to bind and loose what's been bound and loosed in heaven for a few years. <laughs> and then the church is left to kind of figure things out on its own. I mean, is, that, is that the idea? Well, no, of course not. We might ask, at what point did the apostles' doctrine become non-binding? <laughs> and how did people know that it had become non-binding. Well, there's no indication that the apostles' doctrine would stop being authoritative after a given time. And so the apostles are given the authority to, to teach the truth, to teach God's truth, to establish God's truth in the world. Now let's look at another, another couple of passages. Turn to the book of Jude, small book toward the end of the New Testament, the book of Jude. And I want you to look at verse 17. Jude verse 17, just has that one chapter, you remember? And Jude says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers. I want you to remember the words of the apostles. Now there's a reason he says, I want you to remember the words of the apostles. The apostles were being led into all truth. The apostles had the authority to teach. They were officially designated representatives of Christ as they went out to teach. They taught in His name. They taught with His authority. Find a very similar statement in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. So the apostles had authority in the church. The apostles had the authority to convey and communicate God's message. No wonder with just about every letter Paul writes, he establishes his apostolic authority. I, the, Paul the Apostle, I'm writing to you. Just about all of his letters he begins that way. I have the authority as an apostle to teach you and to guide you to correct doctrine and practice. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you remember that Paul says that the things that I'm writing to you are the commandment of the Lord. And so, so the apostles have that authority. They speak the commandment of the Lord as it's revealed to them by the Spirit who's guiding them into all the truth. Go to the, first, the, the book of 1 John Chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. 
1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 6. Remember, John is writing in response to some false teachers who were circulating all kinds of error uh, concerning Christ. Uh, all these things might have sprung from a single fundamental erroneous principle, a single uh, erroneous doctrine. They were saying that Christ did not come in the flesh. They could hate their brother. That walking in darkness would not affect one's relationship with God. And, and John is correcting this. And so here are these false teachers out there. They're circulating this doctrine about Christ. He hasn't come in the flesh and so forth. But look at what he says in 1 John 4 verse 6. Now, now we are from God. John and his colleagues who are teaching the same thing as John. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and error. Well, I wonder if John's corrections are good only for the first century. Or are they good for all time? If people today came along and said, well, you know, Jesus hasn't come in the flesh. Wouldn't we go to the writings of 1 John and, and correct that? Don't we go to the writings of the apostles to answer erroneous doctrine today, to establish the true doctrine today? Of course we do. Look at the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 1 Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there's, there's sort of a, a chain with several links in it there. You, get, you have Paul who's establishing doctrine, and, and Paul has taught Timothy, and Timothy is to teach faithful men, and they're going to teach others. And so you've got this sort of chain, this generational chain. Paul to Timothy, to faithful men, to others. And they're teaching the same doctrine. So you see that Paul says, the things that I have taught you, I want you to teach those things, the things that I've taught you, to faithful men who will be able to teach these same things to others. So Paul's teaching, of course, rests on the authority, his apostolic authority, and is to be passed on from generation to generation. The teaching of the apostles would convict the world. In John chapter 16, we saw verse 13 a moment ago, but if you look just prior to that, you'll see that the teaching of the apostles would convict. And so verse 8, when He comes, that is, the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, can't bear them now, but when the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. And so the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world in these matters by the teaching of the apostles that would be guided by the Holy Spirit. And again, that happens even today as the gospel is preached, the words of the apostles are preached today, people are convicted, and then they come to the Lord. Go back into the Old Testament, look at a couple of passages there. Uh, we're going to turn first of all to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, and we're going to look at verse 3. Isaiah 55 and verse 3. The Lord says, Incline your ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, 
according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And so the Lord is looking forward to a time when He would establish an everlasting covenant. Now go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're going to look at verse 30, chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt and so forth. And so I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. But if you go over to chapter 32 and verse 40, you find this statement. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them that I'll not turn away from them to do them good. And so I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. Well, where do we find the new covenant? We find it in the New Testament, don't we? In the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the apostles. They describe for us the new covenant. They give us the terms of the new covenant. But it's also called an everlasting covenant. And so what we find in the new covenant is to last throughout the generations. It's an everlasting covenant. It's not a temporary covenant as the first covenant was. It's an everlasting covenant. And so what do we find from all of those passages? Well, we find that the apostles taught with the authority of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the Spirit would come upon them. They have the authority to bind and loose. And so it's no wonder that those early disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine. We saw that people during that first century era were told to resort to or appeal to the words of the apostles. Jude verse 17 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. John says, we are of God. And so those who want the truth will listen to us. Those who don't want the truth don't listen to us. Paul tells Timothy, you take the things that you've learned from me and you teach them to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And so all of this suggests to us that what we find in the New Testament was intended to be taught generation after generation after generation. There's no indication that it would sort of pass away, become passe, become inadequate, and the church then should develop its own doctrine. Now, in addition to that, there are warnings. <laughs> there are warnings in the Bible not to change the doctrine that's been taught. I was reminded of the words to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. As Joshua, you remember, is beginning to lead the people into the promised land. He's the successor of Moses. And in verse 7, he's, he's told, Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do all the, uh, according to all the law which my, Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And so the idea, you know, here, here are the commandments I've given. You do those. Don't, don't turn. Don't change it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Just stay right within that teaching that I've given. We also find that kind of idea in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, Paul's been addressing some issues going on there in the church at Corinth, and he's been quoting, he's quoted a number of scriptures in the course of his, his discussion and addressing those issues. And in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, These things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written. So, so don't go beyond what's written. He's been quoting the Old Testament. 
been establishing, you know, the truth of God by Scripture. Now, don't go beyond what's written. What, what is written? Well, Scripture is written. And so don't go beyond the Scripture. Don't go beyond what's written. That's, that's good policy, isn't it? Don't go beyond what's written. A very similar idea is found over in 2 John in verse 9. And remember, again, John is writing and addressing some issues, very important, serious issues concerning the nature of Christ and maybe some other things as well. He's dealing with these false teachers and he says, Anyone who goes onward and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. The one who, who goes beyond the doctrine of Christ, goes beyond the doctrine of Christ, doesn't have God. Here's a warning. You stay within the doctrine of Christ. Where do we learn that? We learn that from the, the man that Jesus appointed to communicate, to teach his doctrine. Of course, the, the apostles. In the book of Galatians chapter 1, another warning not to change or to alter, I, I digress from the word that's been taught. Beginning in verse 6. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. So I came and I taught to you the gospel. Now if somebody comes in from the outside and they teach something other than what I've taught, he's, he's to be accursed. Any indication in the text itself that, that that's ever going to change, that we can disregard the teaching and the doctrine of Paul that Paul taught, and, and kind of do, use our best judgment to figure out what to do. I, I, I don't see it. Finally, in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. I thought about that expression, do all in the name of the Lord. If, if I were a businessman and I went to a convention... And I was there in the name of my company. Let's say in the name, I'm here in the name of Alabama Power. Well, what would that suggest? Well, it might suggest a lot of things. I'm here as a representative of Alabama Power. I'm here to act in the best interest of Alabama Power. I'm here to promote the cause of Alabama Power. I'm act on, here to act on behalf of Alabama Power. But I've also come to act with the authority of Alabama Power. Which one does he mean? Well, he means all of those. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do, you do it in the name of Christ to promote his cause on his behalf, but also with the authority of Christ. So that's what we want to do. We want to, to do what we do in the name of Christ with his authority. And so the apostles' teaching is authoritative. It, it establishes the truth. It's to be taught to others. There's no indication that it provided a temporary standard that future generations would, uh, would be left without any guide but their own judgment. There, there's no indication of that. So we remember the words of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scriptures inspired of God and profitable for teaching, reprove correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so, through the Scriptures, 
we become complete, adequate. The Scriptures are sufficient to guide us into every good work. And so, the New Testament Scriptures are our guide in matters of doctrine and practice. Though external circumstances change, we travel by jet today, not by chariot and horse. We might teach the gospel by computer today or on television, which they didn't have. We have microphones today, which they didn't have then. And so those external circumstances may change. But the doctrine continues to stay the same. The practice stays the same. The teaching of the Scripture doesn't change. So we want to establish what we teach and what we practice by Scripture and be able to use Scripture in defense of what we practice and teach. In other words, let's go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible. Let's do what the Bible says the New Testament should do. And when people ask us, why do you do this or why do you do that? Well, we do it, but here's what the Scriptures teach us to do. Go back to the Bible as God established it, and we will be, we'll be right. Well, how do we do that? Let me just make this statement quickly. How do we get back to the Bible? How do we implement what we find in the Bible? Well, we put into practice what the New Testament churches were taught and follow their example. We draw from the different writings of the New Testament. And we do what churches are taught to do, and we follow the examples of those early churches that we find described in the Bible. If you wanted to, if you wanted to find out how, is I, how can I as an individual be a disciple who pleases God? As just an individual disciple, how, how do I know that I'm going to be pleasing to God? Well, what you would do is you'd go to the New Testament, and, and whenever a, a Christian was taught to do something, so I'm okay, I need to do that. Whenever a Christian was forbidden to do something, it's okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and we can look at examples of that. Maybe a good illustration is Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as, as dead to fornication and impurity and passion. And so, okay, I'm, I want to be a, a person that pleases God, so I'm going I'm to put all those things away. I'm not going to practice those things. And then verse 12, as those who have been chosen by God, and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and so forth. And so I'm, I'm going to do those things. But I wouldn't just stop with Colossians chapter 3. I'd, I'd look at other passages in the New Testament as well. And so I'd gather from all of this information in the New Testament, I, I'd try to put it all together and practice it in my life. But you know what else I would do? I, I would look at some examples of faithful men and women in the Bible as well. Paul makes an interesting statement in Philippians chapter 4, and verse 9. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What, what, what you've seen me do, you, you follow my example. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow my example. <laughs> and so, if I want to be a person that pleases God, I'm going to look at the New Testament, gather as much information as I can, and it's going to be a lifelong process, isn't it? Gather that information and apply it to myself. If the Lord says, do this, I'm going to do it. If He says, don't do this, I'm not going to do it. I'm also going to learn from the example of Paul and Peter and John and, and other righteous men and women in the New Testament. And when I, when I gather all that information, I'll have a good comprehensive understanding of what a Christian should be. 
Or we can approach the church in the same way, right? Sometimes I, I've heard people say, well, you say you want to be a New Testament church. Well, which church? You want to be like the church at Corinth? That was a New Testament church. How about the church at Ephesus? You'll be like that church. That was a New Testament church. How about church at Antioch? You'll be like that church. That was a, which New Testament church do you want to be like? Well, they've, they've missed the point. <laughs> uh, we approach what we're going to do and teach in the local church in the same way we take the Bible, the information in the Bible, and apply it to ourselves as individuals. We look in the New Testament and we find if a church is told to do something, we'll, we'll do it. If it's showed not to do something, we won't do that. And we'll look at the examples of sound practices in the New Testament, New Testament churches we're carrying out, and, and we'll do that as well. And as we gather all of that information, the result will be a good, comprehensive understanding of what a church ought to be. Now, I understand context is important, but once we learn what they were taught to do and what they did, then, then we want to follow that. Now, that should get us back to the Bible, right? And so, what are we going to do as a church? Well, let's go back to the inspired text. Let's go back to the Bible. And when we see a church being taught to do a thing, we'll do it. And when we see a church doing, doing something, some practice, some doctrine that's approved by God, okay, we'll, we'll do that as well. Now, that'll get us back to the Bible. You see, our goal is to be a New Testament church. So that's what I've been studying on Sunday morning. Not, not just the church, <laughs> the New Testament church. Why would we study the New Testament church? Because <laughs> we find in the New Testament what a church ought to teach and what a church ought to do. And so we're going to call people back to the Bible. The Bible is adequate. It's God's Word. It's sufficient. It will guide us into every good work as long as we do what the Scriptures teach churches to do. Well, then we'll be right with God. Hope that uh, all that's been beneficial, maybe stimulated our thinking a little bit, made us uh, consider, uh, you know, uh, how we ought to approach our doctrine and practice as a church and, and how we want to use the Bible as a group of God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for today, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship you. We, we do recognize, Father, we acknowledge your greatness, your worthiness, your great power and wisdom, your might, your splendor, your glory. And we, Father, stand in awe of those things. We understand our own unworthiness, our own sinfulness. And yet, Father, in your grace and your love and mercy, you have forgiven those things that stand between us and you. You've taken those things out of the way so that we can have fellowship with you and that we can come before you on occasions like this and our efforts will be acceptable to you. We pray, Father, that our efforts have been acceptable to you today. Help us, Father, to honor your word, to have the proper respect for your word. We understand, Father, that it's come from you that it's timeless. It's, it's not limited by our time in history, but it's applicable throughout history to all times, to all generations, even down to us today. Help us, Father, to see the things that you would have us to see as we study these things so that we might be the kind of people that you would have us to be, that we might be 
the local church that you would have us to be. Father, our interest, our goal is to be well-pleasing to you. Father, eliminate anything that would hinder that in our lives as we strive together to do your will in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're present tonight,